I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, and thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. This week, our show comes live from the BFI South Bank, where every month I do my Mark Kermode Live in 3D show. On this show, we have a terrific selection of guests. We'll be hearing from Lenny Abramson, director of Room and Frank. He'll be talking about the Irish Film Festival, of which he's a patron, and also he'll be choosing his guilty pleasure, which is the brilliant Dumb and Dumber. We've also got Ben Wheatley, director of Sightseers and High Rise, who'll be talking about his new film, Happy New Year, Colin Bursted, and also the influence of Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver, which is one of his favourite films, a real inspiration for him. But before that, we'll hear from Rita Rosset, who's a rising filmmaker whose first film, Bliss, has just been released. So sit back and enjoy this edition of Kermode on Film, live from the BFI South Bank. And a quick warning, this episode contains some strong language. Hello, everybody. Are we all here? Okay, so let's start off with our uh, usual Ask the Audience. We've got an awful lot to get through this evening, uh, which is fabulous, which is really, really great. So, uh, Steve Davey, are you here? Hey, Steve. Can we run a microphone to Steve? Hi, Mark. Hello. Um, my question was, which film do you want to see receive the Blu-ray special edition treatment that's yeah. never so far seen the light of day? It was almost as if I'd set this up, because I hadn't... You probably know the answer to this. Which film do I think should be given the Blu-ray treatment, which hasn't been? Clearly, The Devils. No, because here is the thing. There is still no Blu-ray of The Devils. And let's not be mealy-mouthed about this, okay? Here in this theatre, years and years ago, when Ken Russell was still with us, we premiered an uncut version of The Devils with the Rape of Christ sequence put back in again, with Vanessa and the Bone put back in again, that had been edited by Mike Bradsall, who edited that film originally. We played it here. It got a standing ovation. The BBFC was sitting actually almost exactly where you're sitting. And I asked them from the stage, do you have any problem with it at all? They went, no, it's all absolutely fine. And then Warner in America have refused to allow that version to be released. So the BFI DVD, which is the most complete version, which is the UK X-rated version, is the only version you can get. You cannot get Ken's director's cut. And the only reason you can't is because Warner won't allow it to happen. And it should be available on Blu-ray. It should be done, because we, we recorded a commentary for it. There's a director commentary with Ken Russell, Mike Brazel, me, and Paul Joyce, who did the documentary, the Hell on Earth documentary. The whole thing exists. It's all done. It's all signed off. It's been sitting in a vault for ages. And Warner in America are preventing a great work of British art from being shown in its uncut form on Blu-ray. And it is shameful. They should be embarrassed. And it should be available on Blu-ray. And now I'll get back off my soapbox. <laughs> 
Anyway, so um, we have a series of great filmmakers coming on uh, the show tonight. Firstly, I want you to welcome to the stage uh, Rita Osei, who's made her first feature, which is called Bliss. And I met Rita originally through a conference that Linda Williams was doing as part of the Calling the Shots. And it's an extraordinary story making the film. And the film is now available. It's just been available on uh, iTunes. And I'd really like people to get a chance to see it. Please welcome to the stage rising talent, Rita Osei. Welcome to the show. What a pleasure to have you. Thank you. So we've got, we've got a couple of clips that we're going to show from Bliss. Firstly, congratulations on getting it made. All I hear is how hard it is to get your first feature. How difficult was it? Can I? Yes, you can, be, you can speak freely. Bloody hard. <laughs> <laughs> it, basically, it was 12 years in the making, not wow. consecutive years. But I began developing the film in 2003. And, um, it, well, I delivered it at the end of 2016. So actually it's like more like 13 years. It's astonishing. At any point during that that you lost hope? Many times, many <laughs> times. Um, but because I had such an amazing lead who was on the journey with me from age 13, and sh we shot the film when she was 17, that really kept me going. And who is the lead? Freya Parks, who's here. For those who haven't seen it, so the film is now available to download from... You said it, but it opened in, in, in some territories already, like a year or so ago. So why has it taken us so long to get it here? Well, I, I mean, you know, the UK industry is, you know, it's a new thing, really, isn't it? There's so much content available to distributors, and ours is a... It's not your average film. It's art house, but it costs a lot of money to make. So... Yes, yeah, Sky New Zealand, actually. That's where it was first shown. Wow. And China bought it. And it's um, done OK at the festivals. In 2016, we premiered at Edinburgh. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And then we went on to Seville European Film Festival, where it was nominated for the Europa Junior Award. That was magnificent. Watching the film with a 1,000 kids who were watching a quite thick Geordie accent with um, Spanish subtitles and just getting every single beat. It was wonderful. Can you just briefly, for those who haven't seen it, explain what the film's about? It's about a young girl who is from South Shields in the northeast, and she finds out that her father isn't her father, and she gets an inkling that he's a Viking. So she sails away from South Shields to Bergen in Norway to find this Viking father. And the audience that you're aiming for, you've talked about it being sort of you know, like a young adult, or how do you define what kind of audience you're aiming for? It's directed at 12-year-old girls, but hopefully we'll also get you know, some younger and some older. It's the pre-teen and the teen audience. Okay. It is aimed at girls, but it proved that boys like it as well. In um, Seville, there was a boy that came up to me and said, I want to be a dad now, a real dad one day. Wow. That was amazing. Well, I'm a boy and I found it very, found it very touching. Can we, we've, we have two clips. Do you want to set up what's happening in the first clip, which is the lighthouse clip? Well, this is the scene where she talks about wanting a father and the right to have one. No, I think we've got the same dad. We've got the same ears. No, we haven't. You've got big ears like Charlie. And his nose. I don't want Charlie for a dad. I want the same dad as you, Tash. Mum will never tell us anyway. I want a real dad. Not some man who comes around to fuck my man when he feels like it. And gives us a five hour Christmas. I want a real dad. 
So this 13-year project, um, you're already working now on your next film, which comparatively is relevant. 13 years for the first one, and now it's like two years in, and you're actually in the middle of your next project now. Well, I'm in development, and it's because I have... It's, it's a visual documentary, so the process is different, okay. and it's a, a project that's very close to my heart. It is based on Cleo Sylvester, who's in the audience. And um, Cleo's a wonderful performer. She's a, a singer, she's an actress, humanitarian, and basically she was the first ever black actress to perform in a leading role at the National Theatre. And infamously in 1964, Cleo bravely bunked off school to go and record a record for Phil Spector. To know him is to love him. Andrew Alden as well, but Phil Spector wrote it. And Cleo had a, a backing band called the Rolling Stones. <laughs> and, and Cleo, how did they do? <laughs> They're okay. So you say you're in development with this. What, is, if, you know, what does that mean? So you're, you're planning it or you've started shooting stuff? Or, or I haven't started shooting stuff. I'm planning it. I'm figuring out the journey, the story with Cleo and all of the elements. The wonderful thing about visual documentary is it unfolds in a very different way to a screenplay. You know, with a screenplay, you've got set story and you're following that and you want to go from there to there. It's much freer visual documentary um, because I'm, I am a visual storyteller, yeah. so it won't be a talking heads documentary. And, and it's really exciting. And there's a, a really big twist at the end, which obviously I can't talk about. <laughs> Um, but is the fact that Cleo has gone back to singing and she's now touring across London as Honey Bee Mama. <laughs> That's yeah. her alter ego. You talk about um, the, the visual side. I, there was another clip that we have from Bliss, which I'd like to show because you know, Bliss is rooted in reality, but there is a kind of magical element to it. Also, obviously, everybody watching that clip noticed that we have subtitles for it. Tell me about your sort of philosophy of subtitles. Well, we have, well, personally, I used to work at Cartoon Network for many years, and um, I hired this wonderful animator, and he happened to be deaf. And it just struck me that we have this huge community, people that are either hard of hearing or are deaf, and yeah. it's something like nine million in the UK, so it's a massive number. Yeah, yeah. And that's always stayed with me to make sure that, you know, as much as possible, things are subtitled as well as the fact that the Geordie accent can be a bit tricky for other people. There was a couple of lovely moments when the subtitles don't quite say what's said on it, but particularly when it is, there's a couple of times when they say Hawaii and the subtitles say, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, you can't quite translate that, is what it is. <laughs> so look, I want to show the, the library scene, and as I said, there is this element of magic. Do you want to just say something about what's happening when, when we see... Well, the magical elements, for me, they represent her intuition. And that's her writer's passage journey is, is very much about her coming to her, if that makes sense. Yeah. Freya's a singer, so I wanted to utilise her talent. Yeah. And we decided on that quite early in the development process. And then it became something that was representative of her intuition. I mean, it's lovely that the singing, there's a, there's a song which recurs all the way through in which... It's almost as if the film is about to break into being a musical. And what I love about it is that it, you know, it doesn't have any embarrassment about doing that. There are musical interludes, and then the story carries on, which I, I, I was particularly fond of. So let's have a look at this, and this has this thing that I was talking about. So. There you are, lasses. You'll find all the Viking maps you want and more besides. Give us a mention of your project, eh? You'll be featured in the forward. 
I have a confession to make, which was that when I was when I was watching it, and I was reading the subtitle sometimes and other times not, and um, and when the the paper floats up into the air and it says Norway, I thought she said no way. Well, that's <laughs> that's, the, that's on purpose. Oh, that's, okay, that's fine, a little writer's fine, Okay, gag. that's a relief. Yeah. So um, so now, what sort of responses have you had? I mean, you said it's played very very well at festivals, but people now can sort of download it. So, uh, did you get reviews or how's it how's it going down? As far um, as you know. Well, it was quite interesting actually. I've just got back from um, Preston, and um, the film plays so well to the the audience it's intended to. So that's sort of really from a down to maybe even 10. Yeah. Um, wonderful responses from them. We've had mixed reviews from adults that kind of just feel a bit alienated because of the magical elements. Um, but I just say to them, you know, remember you were once a child. Do you think that it is harder for films that are playing to a younger audience to get taken seriously, particularly by, by critics? Do you think that there is a sort of a barrier for them? Maybe, maybe. I mean, you've not... Had that issue, so... <laughs> no, but then I'm fantastically open-minded. Well, there you are. <laughs> For us, it's about, you know, people seeing the film, and there was obviously a very serious message to the film, and um, we hope that that crosses over to adults. It has... I mean, it's very interesting. Spain, um, also we played in Luxembourg. We had um, Irish attendants that are adults that really enjoy it. Yeah. So it's very family-orientated, and I think communities particularly the Latin communities, they are more family-orientated, perhaps, and, and they relate to it more. There are a lot of people who come along to these shows who are interested in, in, in you know, filmmaking and becoming filmmakers. As I said, I think the most remarkable thing is that you stuck with this for such a long time, and again, congratulations for not only getting it done, but for getting it out there, which, as we know, is more than half the battle. You. Do you have a message of encouragement? Is there anything you can say to people to, you know, to say, don't give up? Well, don't give up, no. <laughs> You just got to follow the story. And for me, it wasn't a choice. You know, it just, I kept waking up and it was there. I couldn't get rid of it. So I had to do it. It was such a, a moving um, experience for me, reading the writer's original play, because it is based on the play. Yeah. And, um, you know, when you've got someone's writing that's just so beautiful, you just have to do it. So, so you, you have to find that story that you feel you can only tell, whether it's because you're connected to it directly or because you've just fallen in love with the characters and that's what happened to me. And do you think that the, the, the face of the film industry is changing? Is it, are, are we going to see more people having more opportunities to make movies or is it as difficult as it's always been? I think it's as difficult as it's always been and um, what we have is more opportunity to actually get the film out there because of the VOD platform but um, that doesn't necessarily make it any easier to do so. But you've, I mean, even doing that was complicated enough. Complicated, getting complicated. And you said that when it, when it came out on iTunes, you weren't even told. Well, I wasn't, unfortunately. We found out through a journalist. We saw a press release through um, a journalist, The Observer, actually, yeah. because my wonderful composer, Helen Muddiman, was, is friends with her, and that's how we found out. So, you know, but we got on it and we promoted it. We had to sort of, you know, just get hold of it and, and let people know it was out there. And what's the documentary going to be called? Honeybee Mother from stage to screen to blues queen. That's a fantastic title. How soon do you think we'll be able to see it? Well, I've got to make it first. So. Oh, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> I think possibly at the end of next year. Okay, will you come back onto the show when you've made it and we can talk about what a fantastic triumph it is? I'd love to, thank you. Brilliant. Ladies and gentlemen, Rich Rosset. Thank you very much.
as you know, we've been doing a, a, a section on the show for ages, which was uh, guilty pleasures. And we're still doing guilty pleasures. Don't worry, we're not giving up, despite the fact that people came. So I'm not guilty about my guilty pleasure. That's fine. It's perfectly okay. But um, we had a number of people saying, look, actually, what I really want to talk about is the film that inspired me and the film that I love and the film that I, that I look to. So we basically bent to public demand, didn't we? Because we, we, we're, we're the listening bank. We're the people that like to say yes. We were talking to uh, Ben Wheatley. Ben is a real sort of cineast and a real enthusiast. So we said, okay, what would you like perhaps to talk about? And he made an absolutely brilliant choice. So to talk first about his new film and then about the film that inspired him, please welcome to the stage, Ben Wheatley. Now, I have to say, um, for those who, 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 uh, who've been coming to this show for a while, in Guilty Pleasures, Ben set the bar pretty high because you went for... Zardoz. See, they remember. Yeah, of Everyone, course. No one's forgotten the time that Ben came in here and said that Zardoz was a guilty pleasure. And, and I know that that is a film that you genuinely... It is not a guilty pleasure. No. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure, yeah. yeah. And uh, I, you and I had, sort of had a set two about it. Before we yeah. get to the film that inspired you, Happy New Year, Colin Bursted has played here at the BFI already. You're doing a Q&A tomorrow night, is that correct? Yeah. For those who haven't seen it, tell us a few words about the film. What is it? It's a, a joyous film about a family. You have a wonderful, wonderful, uh, heartwarming New Year's together. It's something for everyone. <laughs> uh, don't be put off by the 15 certificate for strong language. There's, there's so much any, more to be offended yeah, there, by. Yeah, there's hardly any fucks in it at all. It's not, it's not as bad as they're, you know, people are letting on. Um, Mike Lee was on the show, uh, and you had said that when you made Sightseers... There was this thing about, you know, it was uh, uh, nuts in May with axes. And, uh, and then, you know, when you and I did a culture show thing, you killed me on screen for, for, for saying that, which obviously was a pleasure. I was delighted to have been killed by you on screen. And then when you were doing the Q&A here, I know you, you said rather fatuously, you said, well, we did, we did that, but now we've basically done Abigail's party, so we're working our way through Mike Lee's back catalogue. And Mike Lee was delighted to hear that. Oh, was he right? Yeah, because he was in the audience. That's why I said it. Oh, time, OK, fine, 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 fine. That one, and I, I kind of went, oh, fuck, there's Mike Lee. <laughs> I've, got, I've only got one chance to do this. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I thought I was terribly clever, and then I, then I got off stage and went, "Oh my God, I'm going to throw up! I should never have said that." But yeah, uh, it's not. Yeah, it's it's, it, it's as much like Abigail's party as in there's lots of people kind of slightly having a party and having a row with each other, but it's not you know particularly like Abigail's. And how did it come about? Because obviously, it's a, there's there's a television connection as well with this role. Because obviously, we're talking about theater, it is going to play in some cinemas, but yeah, we're going to see it primarily on television over yeah, Christmas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I'm I'm really chuffed about. Yeah, it's it's a it's so it, over the Christmas period on BBC Two. So it's like, because it, it kind of, as we made it, we felt it was like a bit play for today, you know, and, and to get that mass, hopefully get that mass audience for it in one hit is, is, a, is a rare treat for a film these days because, yeah. you know, the whole world of, you know, a film being on television and you bothering to watch it is kind of over, isn't it? You once said that you, um, you, that you read everything that was written on Twitter about you know, the films that you'd made. And you said at one point that you had to stop because you said it was like hearing the whole audience talking the whole time. And yeah. so are you there? Are you on it or off it at the moment? Uh, yeah, I was off it and then I went back. <laughs> it's like Zamo or something. <laughs> <laughs> really shocking. I think I'm actually back on it. I'm, I'm, I'm running the... the Twitter feed for this, though I'm not officially on it. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. So I am on back so, on fucking. So when it's on. when it's playing on television, will you be sitting there with your phone doing that? <sighs> no. Come on. 
I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I remember, I remember when High Rise came out and my phone almost just set on fire. <laughs> you know, and then people coming out going, yeah, I really liked it. I fucking hated it. I really liked it. I fucking hated it. I was like, oh, God, no, I can't take it. So, yeah, I, I think it's really interesting that you can hear everything. I think that's great to hear all those opinions, which would have just been stuck in a bar somewhere, completely private back in the day. But um, Although sometimes I think they should still be stuck in a bar somewhere private. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm so glad that I don't tweet about film live. <laughs> <laughs> if I was as gobby as I was when I was 20, now, and I would have been on, yeah, online, yeah, yeah, I, you know, I'd be having to, no amount of uh, Dettol would scrub that horrible fucking... Um, <laughs> that stain away, you know. So when Haley was here, we showed one clip of Colin Burst. I'd like to show another one now. We're going to show the... the do, you, do, you, do you know the clip that we're showing? Or the car chase clip? No, not the car chase clip, or, or, the, or the explosion, or the, the, flight, the helicopter, because that stuff's at the end, and it's spent, a big surprise. we spent all the money on that stuff. You're gonna, it's not going to be just people talking, is yeah. it? Okay, well, we'll just show a clip. It's self-explanatory, then we can do it afterwards. Again. It's basically a, cl a film, of, a clip of people talking. I'm really sorry. That's Unbelievable. <laughs> you better say hello to your mother. She's still upset. No, she's fine. Come here. Hi. Where is she? Does she know I'm here? No, she's here, but she's in a wheelchair. How long has she been in a wheelchair for? About 15 minutes. Oh, up in there. Oh, in there. What? It's just a quiet, yeah. private space you can get your client done, really? you know. Away from the party and the... It's a bit cold. Yeah, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what I love is that even you're laughing at it. Yeah, I'm indulgent like that, yeah. But, that, but that, that's because, honestly, people usually make things and they can't watch them and they, can't, they certainly can't ever find the jokes funny. But what you seem to take pleasure in is the performances. Yeah, well, I love watching Maskell and, I love, and, and, and Bill Patterson and I have to say everyone's name now, don't I? You but, do, but, but it's... Uh, and Sam Riley, but Patterson, Patterson particularly because I loved him in Singing Detective mm -hmm. and I got to work with him over the last couple of years and that's been brilliant. Did, do you think, do people generally know that you started out doing comedy and doing comedy shorts and doing virals and that sort of stuff? Is that something that's, that's, that's generally known about you? I don't know. So Ben it, started it, out doing comedy, yeah. doing comedy shorts Wiki, and virals could, and yeah, that stuff. Yeah, Wikipedia and, and all that, it's on that. Okay. Which my sister wrote, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so it's particularly kind. And, and Amy, your partner and writing partner, still has no public social media presence whatsoever. Is that still correct? Yeah, totally, yeah. I mean, she, she actually was... She did a talk at the BFI the other day, so she's slightly oh, wow. caught, come out of the, from behind the curtain. So she, if only just to prove that she's a real person <laughs> and, uh, you know, and to take rightly the credit for stuff that she's done. You know. And have you written with her the project that you're now working on? Which no. is OK. What are you working on now? Uh, Rebecca, the Daphne du Maurier's book. See, exactly. Ooh. Do you want to say a few words about it? Because literally that's what happens every time anyone mentions that. That's what you're doing. Yeah, well, it, we're basically what we're going to do, uh, they got offered the script and I looked at it and I thought, you know, the, uh, each of the movies I've made is at kind of 90 degrees to the last one. Yeah. You know, and I wanted to make something, and I've been moving towards trying to make a romantic comedy. Rebecca is not that film, obviously. <laughs> but, um, but I wanted to Although make... Although in the universe of your films, it probably is. <laughs> yeah, it's, more, it's more upbeat than the other movies <laughs> I've made. But it's, yeah, I just wanted to make something that was a bit more uh, in, in, in that register, a bit more heartfelt and a bit more about love. And, uh, yeah. Who's so. the screenplay by? 
uh, Jane Goldman. Oh, oh, right. Okay, fine. Yeah, yeah. So they came to you with a finished screenplay and said, would you like to direct? Yeah, yeah. And I read it and went, God, this is fucking great. Let's do it. Okay. Um, the film that you chose as your kind of inspiration is something that I think everybody will know. What was it? It was Taxi Driver. I expected more of a response than that, so... It's just unsurprising, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, no, 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 but it's a good... Well, listen, you did Zardoz before. Yeah, so, well, yeah. It, so let's do this properly. It was... Taxi Driver. We've got a couple of clips that we're going to show from Taxi Driver. Obviously, it is quite hard to find stuff from Taxi Driver that is fine to show just sort of in general. When did you first see Taxi Driver? Um, I think I saw it when I was about 14. Okay, so, and it was an X-rated film, so you will have been underage. Yeah, but, um, and I rented it as, on VHS oh, okay. and, and pan and scanned. So was this like early 80s? Yeah, so well, fine. whenever it was. Yeah, so you child of the video nasty era. Yeah, yeah, way, yeah. Oh, fantastic. And, I, and when we rented it, it was my, me and my mate Dom Sutton, and, um, and I was so naive about film at that point that I thought it, I thought it had Danny DeVito in it. <laughs> Honestly. Danny DeVito's Taxi Driver is a film that yeah, I yeah. would pay to see. And I, and I thought that, yeah, I thought, why, who'd want to see a film about a taxi driver? That sounds bollocks. Um, but I thought it might be like Taxi or something, so it might be funny. So we rented it, and um, oh we didn't know anything about it, and it just melted our heads, and we just started going, oh, fuck, what is this? What is this madness? And then just, and at the end, it's the thing that really, you know, the thing, basically is the first time I experienced a director, I think, okay. you know, and, and, and I think the thing that got me at the end, you know, the bit at the end when he looks in the, in the wing mirror and it has that backwards symbol, we just sat there agog, just, and, we didn't, and we kept playing it backwards and forwards and rewinding, go, what, 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 does that, what does that even mean? What is that? Oh, my God. And, yeah, and the whole film, it's just, it opened my whole head to cinema straight away. We have two clips to show. The first one is him getting the job. The first one, I said to you, look, you know, we'd like to have something from kind of earlier, earlier on in the film. And the obvious suggestion was, you know, you talking to me, but you suggested this scene. What is it about this scene that you particularly like? I think it's because it's so unnerving. The whole thing, every shot is weird in it. It's weirdly framed. There's this weird top shot where he puts his hat. I think, which I think is at 50 frames or something like that for, for no good reason. And the dialogue's so stilted and odd and. Uh, and just yeah, I mean every frame of the taxi driver is unnerving and, and terrifying. I yeah. think. You know. Okay, let's have a look. So what do you want to hack for, Bickle? I can't sleep nights. There's porn out there just for that. Yeah, I know. I tried that. So what do you do now? You know, ride around nights mostly, subways, buses. Figure you know, if I'm gonna do that. I might as well get paid for it. Want to work uptown nights, South Bronx, Harlem? I work anytime, anywhere. Will you work Jewish holidays? Anytime, anywhere. All right, let me see your shopper's license. I think the thing that's remarkable about it is, is, is how low-key it is and yet how really, really, you know, electric it is. Because they're doing very little. Yeah, it's and a tiny scene about a man getting hired as a taxi driver, but why is that, you know, I think it, it also it's like, it feels like it's a documentary as well, I think that's something to do with the sound and the performances of, are really, really real, and yet it's shot in this kind of quite Im, Im, impressionistic style as well, you know, all these weird little movements and pushes and stuff, and it's, uh, you know, you feel like you're drawn straight into it. And the score is such a big part of that film, I and mean, even in that sequence you hear, you hear as you come in, you know, that, that 
kind of you know you mentioned it almost being like a horror movie mm. there is a real horror element to Herman's score but there's also that romanticism that lyricism underneath it and I mean it, I think it's the last thing yeah he died bef before the film came out I yeah. think he, he died as they record they recorded it and he died that night yeah it's the greatest um uh first score last score career of all time isn't it Herman the first score is Citizen Kane yeah, it's a pretty good place to start, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Citizen Kane starting, Taxi Driver, and then in the middle of it, two yeah, theremins boom, with... Yeah, mic wow. drop, see you later. <laughs> um, the second clip that we're going to show is from the climax of the film, and I confess that we had some discussions about you know, how much we could or couldn't show... Yeah, this. I wanted all the violent stuff, but you don't, you've chickened out on that, obviously. Ben, you wanted seven minutes of a clip, OK? You know, <laughs> to which you know, I would happily say, go watch the film. <laughs> but we're picking up after the shootout. And, and actually, I think this is, this is a really... It's, it's a brilliant sort of aftermath moment. And I think it sort of feeds nicely into some of the stuff that you're doing with the visual. So this is the, this is a kind of, it's not a plot spoiler, but this is kind of, to, this is the, the after the, the after, big After climate. Danny DeVito's gone. After Danny DeVito's <laughs> gone, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> he gets shot before this happened. Lucas yeah, got it's shot. It's incredible yeah. that the TV series became this, isn't it? I mean, he's really it's extraordinary. It's interpretation, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it really is. <laughs> see echoes of that in your own work i wish <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think i think that the certainly after you know after seeing this and then kind of reading about scorsese and following you know i've followed him he's talking about film to pal pressburger and all and all those influences um and the you know, marriage of camera and sound and music. Yeah, it's a massive influence. I, I wouldn't say, you know, just watching this now makes me want to go and see the film again and, and reminds me why I loved it so much the first time I saw it. You know, it's just mind-boggling. So to get anywhere near it would be, even to get, you know, even with, uh, within 100 miles of it would be a major success. But, you know, it's not going to happen. You, so you've, <laughs> you've, you've worked with Scorsese. Yeah. What was it like meeting him? Um, I think it's about as close for for me as, as a film fan. It's the about, executive produced Free Fire. Uh, Free Fire, yeah, as, about as close as you can get to um, the experiences of being on ecstasy without taking taking any ecstasy in the room. You know, as a sad film fan, I was just like, oh, for fuck, you know. But yeah, and did you go full geek? What? The, the problem is you you hit a barrier straight away, which is that every, I don't know about you, but for me, everything I know about film, I've read you know, uh, about Hollywood, old Hollywood and stuff. So as soon as you open your mouth to someone like that, you go, oh, fuck, you were there. <laughs> and, like, and if you weren't there, you talk to someone firsthand who was there. So my, whatever I'm saying is so fucking lame. <laughs> I should just be quiet, you know. And I was looking at him going, and he was talking away, and I was like looking at him going, oh, no, oh, you, work with, you were in 
Kurosawa's dreams, weren't you? So you knew Kurosawa. Oh, fuck. You know, it was just like, oh. You know, so it, it, it's uh, virtually, virtually impossible, yeah. So I could just heard my heart going the whole time. And I didn't really even hear what he was saying. It was like, it was like dun, 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 dun. Yeah. See, my only version of that story was uh, my friend Matt, who made uh, Days of Our Lives, the Queen documentary. His father uh, lives in America. He's not with us anymore. He's a really, really great guy. And we fell into conversation when I first met him about the meaning of blow up mm. and uh, the meaning of the end of blow up when they have the, the mime tennis match, you know. Yeah. And I said, well, the whole thing is it's about, you know, illusion versus reality. And, and he said, no, I think it's that they just they ran out of film. There was a whole stuff. And I said, no, 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 I'm, you know, I, this is what the thing. And he said, he said, no, no, it's because they ran out of film. There was another subplot and they just ran out of film. And I said, well, you know, I am a film critic. I have written about it. He said, yeah, I'm in the film. <laughs> Here's Marshall McLuhan. You know. <laughs> exactly. No, it was literally, it was Ronan O'Casey. He is the guy that gets blown up in the photograph. And there was I holding forth about, this is what it means. And so I learned to stop doing that. Um, so are we going to get your wages of fear or not? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, as much as anything is certain in this world. So this is, a, 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 am I right in thinking it's an all-female remake of Wages of Fear? No, it's not right. Oh, okay. That was, that was a, I did an Empire interview and it came out, that came out of that. And I yeah. think it was the same week as there was some other, I think it was, might have been Ghostbusters or something like that. And they just conflated it in the interview. And I said, there is, there is a woman in it, I think oh, okay, I said. Fine. And then it became all, all women, which is a fine idea. But I mean, geez, it's quite high, weirdly high concept. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah, know? yeah. They go into a bar find all women to drive the exploding trucks. <laughs> no men, just women, please. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah. But you have a script for that that you did, that was written with Amy? No, I've written this one. Okay, without Amy? Yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah, yeah, it happens. Yeah, When she's out, I get on the typewriter. <laughs> I can knock, knock a few screenplays out while she uh, not no, not, doesn't notice. And know. so that's on a back burner, but it may still happen. Yeah, I think, it, you know, it, it's just these things all kind of stack up and get happen or don't happen um uh, with i think it's when you get close to them within within a uh, three or four month closeness of production then you might have an, an inkling of what you're doing otherwise it's it's just mad like press releases just get sent out all the time with stuff that you you, you no idea if it's going to happen or not okay well look ben it's always a pleasure to have you taxi driver such a great choice zardoz i still you know you and i will have we have an argument to have about that but it's fine cross about it what's the matter <laughs> Fucking hell. I'm not, I'm not angry, Ben. I'm just disappointed. It's this. <laughs> Bormans in Ireland somewhere going, oh, fucking hell, what's that in my back? <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the fantastic Ben Wheatley. Thank you. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay, so moving swiftly along, we haven't done a list of mania for a while, and I'm not sure why. How many people saw Bross after the screaming stops? 
Okay, listen to me. This is a really good film, okay? And I was not a Bross fan, never have been, never bought a Bross record, you know, never any of that stuff. I thought this, this documentary was really, really lovely. It was kind of had, you know, elements of Spinal Tap, but also stuff about kind of battling brothers. And it, it, there are some lines in it that are just, this one moment when one of the brothers says, he says, yes, well, the thing is, it's like we're two rectangles and you put us together, we make a square. <laughs> or... <laughs> Or the classic, Rome wasn't built in a day, but we don't have the time that Rome did. <laughs> Seriously, honestly, it is a work of genius. And it, it, laughter and tears are something for everybody. Okay, So you have to see it. So I decided very quickly, I did a top 10, in no particular order, but we kind of put them in order anyway. Uh, top 10 of rock and roll or sort of bluesy documentary. So at number 10... Uh, what happened with Simone? Now, I know this doesn't technically count as a rock documentary. I think it is. It's a blues documentary. I think it's a, it's a really fine piece of work and uh, got great reviews. Really, really good. At number nine, The Punk Singer, which was just such a terrifically well put together piece. Really, really sympathetic. Loads and loads of interesting stories. Loads of stuff I didn't know. And really punchy. You know, it's a, a great movie. Uh, at number eight, Heavy Load. How many people have seen Heavy Load? Okay, you, you really should see this film because this became part of the Stay Out Late campaign. Um, it's basically the story of a group of people with different needs and they're a really great band. But one of the things that they're restricted by is being able to stay out late, late enough to, to go to gigs and late enough to play gigs. And it's just, it's such a, it's such a brilliant piece of work. And I, 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 it, again, it will make you laugh, it will make you cry. The music's really, really good. And uh, so if you get a chance, do see this because it was seen by too few people. I think it's a really wonderful piece of work. At number seven, uh, Am I Black Enough For You, which is the story of B Billy Paul. Again, I knew nothing about his story at all until I saw this documentary, and I thought it was really great. And I think the great rock documentaries will tell you stuff that you didn't know about artists that you didn't know you were interested in before you see the documentary. At number six, so Decline of Western Civilization Part 2. We could have gone for Part 1, but Part 2 is The Metal Years, which is, abs which is really, really brilliant. I mean, it's such a great piece of work. And, in fact, there is a third one now as well. But Decline of Western Civilization Part 2 is, you know, the kind of the, the definitive Penelope Spheris rock documentary. What a great filmmaker Penelope Spheris is. On to number five, Searching for Sugar Man. When I saw Searching for Sugar Man, I didn't know anything of the story of this story at all. And I remember sitting in the screening watching it, thinking, this must be fiction. Somebody, there must, the punchline of this will be that the whole thing has been made up, that it's a document. It's like one of those Coen Brothers things when they say at the beginning, you know, this, this story is completely true at the beginning of Fargo. It was such an extraordinary story. I knew nothing about it before, and I thought it was a really, really great piece of work. Uh, number four, Amy because it's honest and because it tells the story through the words of her songs and because I think what Asif Kapadia managed to do was to use those words to make it into a kind of an on-screen biography as if, those, as if the lyrics that she wrote were her diary. It works so well. Um, at number three, The Devil and Daniel Johnston. I, I take it most of you have seen this, yeah? Okay, if you, anyone who hasn't, this is such a great piece of work. Daniel Johnson's career is extraordinary. When he started recording stuff, he didn't understand about tape copying. So he wrote an album's worth of material that he recorded into a cassette. And whenever anybody else said they wanted a copy of it, he sat down and played the entire cassette through from beginning to end. So there's something like 100 copies of his first cassette. And some of, it, some of the stuff is just really remarkable. Uh, at number two, Dig. 
Dig is brilliant, not least because it includes the phrase, I sneeze and hits come out. <laughs> I mean, it's the story of the Dandy Warhols and the Brian Jonestown Massacre and this kind of ongoing rivalry between the two of them. And again, you think this stuff must be made up, but it's not. It's all completely true. Number one, however, my favorite rock documentary of all time, Anvil, the story of Anvil. This is the film that, honestly, when people say it's like, you know, like a, like a real-life spinal tap, this really is, because it's genuinely heartbreaking, it's genuinely moving, it's genuinely funny. And the whole story of it is, essentially, them, you know, getting things back together again and getting on the road. And it leads up to this gig. This isn't a plot spoiler, because this film's been around for a while. It leads up to this gig that they genuinely don't know whether they're going to have an audience for. And they fall in and they fall out, and it's so moving and it's so lovely. And I am no heavy metal fan, but I absolutely love this documentary. I'm going to show you a clip from it. This is a clip from the end of Anvil, the story of Anvil, when they finally get to play this gig, but they half expect there to be nobody at all in the auditorium when they get there. Hello, Cleveland. A lot of times I close my eyes and during the show and think about the place is full and everybody's freaking out. And I try to pretend that it's all good and, and I deal with, I really deal with it afterwards when the promoter comes up to me and goes, well, Lips, I can't pay you what we originally hoped to pay you. And so it would be a, a really sad moment, I think, to come this distance all for five people or something. I absolutely love that film. Okay, so it's Guilty Pleasures time. Uh, in a couple of days' time, there's, uh, the Irish Film Festival is starting. Here to talk about it and to choose his guilty pleasure, a director who's made some of my favorite films of the last few years. Please welcome to the stage, Lenny Abramson. We've, we've never met before. No. I mean, just sort of very briefly before, but this is kind of us me. And so um, I've drooled in print about uh, uh, some of your films, and it's delightful to have you here. But before we, we fall into just uh, fawning adulation, would oh, you no, like to say... Let's... No, go on. Okay, fine. <laughs> uh, would you like to say something about the Irish Film Festival? What yes, is it? And I give would. Us the, give us the Because the Irish Film Festival London, it starts on the 21st, which is this Thursday, I think, Kelly? Yes? Wednesday, and it goes till the end of the weekend. It's full of unbelievable stuff. I... I'm doing a little talk with Stephen Rennix, who's the composer I work with, yes. um, which is on Thursday uh, after a screening of, or before a screening of The Little Stranger. And uh, also a big shout out for a film called The Lonely Battle of Thomas Reed, which I think you would absolutely love, a superb right. Irish documentary, which I think is on, on Saturday. Anyway, anybody's interested in Irish cinema and it's a good time for Irish cinema, highly recommend you visit. There's a little snippet in there of Little Stranger. Um, obviously, you made Room, which had you know an extraordinary response and you know a brilliant uh, awards recognition. The first film of yours that I saw was Adam and Paul, which was actually the thing which really kind of made me think that you were you were something special. And I I I, I love that film, and it is like a modern day waiting for Godot. Yeah. The Americans say Godot. It's Godot. They say right? Godot, which is weird. They also say Robin Hood. When oh really? It be Robin Hood. Oh, I saw. Oh, yeah, I saw. They do all that. They front load. Yeah. There's a new Robin Hood I saw today. Ah. Yes. Anyway. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you, you reviewed um, Adam and Paul on the BBC. It was a, you had a show on BBC. Yeah, yeah. You did a film part of a show on BBC. Yeah. And it was the first time... Uh, it was like a very... It was a quite an, an, an important thing for us all because it was like, oh, in Ireland, 
particularly then, which is not that, you know, feels like it's only 13, 14 years ago, but it was a very different era. Having yourself mentioned on the BBC was like, this is actually real, you know, this, this, this exists. And so we had, I think we've got over that particular complex that we had in Ireland, particularly as Britain shoots itself in the head. The, no, I won't, I won't, I won't go there. Um, I won't go there. Uh, well, we progress into, you know, um, but, but we, you know what I mean? So, but, but yeah, it was, it was a big deal for us. So thank you. Well, it was, the, the pleasure was entirely mine. In fact, I think that I was tipped off to Adam and Paul by Trevor Johnston, who said that he'd seen it and he said, it's really remarkable. And I, I, I loved it. I thought it was, it was so, you know, so affecting. Um, you also made Frank, which is very interesting to me because when I was in Manchester, I was friends with John Ronson yeah. and everybody who in Manchester at some point had ended up playing with Frank Sidebottom. Yeah. I did a gig with Frank Sidebottom's Oh Blimey Big Band at the Town and Country and Jonathan Richmond was the headline act. Amazing. And Frank Sidebottom's Oh Blimey Big Band with the, with the support, S.E. Rogie and the band that I was then in, the Railtown Bottlers. And I think at that point, John was playing keyboards yeah. with them. And then he'd written a memoir about, uh, you know, working with Frank Sidebottom. And then somebody said, oh, yeah, they're going to turn it into a film. I couldn't understand how, yeah. how that could become a film. Because obviously the, the film itself is a different story, but it takes yeah. inspiration from Frank it's Sidebottom. The, it's the film that... that it's the film that needs the longest preamble to talk about. <laughs> Whenever, when I was doing publicity on Frank, it was like, yeah, well, it, okay, so it isn't, what it isn't, you have to start with what it isn't, and it isn't a biopic about Chris Seavey, or even, even about his fictional character, his particular fiction. It's like a, it's a fictionalized version of an already fictional character, but we imagine, instead of being the alter ego of a comic genius, it's a real, yeah. you know, and you, you, you know, it's an outsider musician. You showed the devil and Daniel Johnson's big influence on the film. There's loads of isn't the, isn't devil and Daniel Johnson such a great it's movie? A, isn't it's it? a super. It's one of my all-time favorite films, and there's a scene in it where it, you know, it, there's that narrative that you think from from learning about Daniel Johnson that you're going to discover that he had some terrible dysfunctional family background. Oh, yeah. it's, you know, and, and actually you meet the parents and you discover they're lovely. Lovely, and that influenced that scene in Frank where they go back in and meet these two very sweet parents of, of poor Frank. One of the things that you did for, uh, for Frank was that you made a decision that the band, the music, would be played properly by the band. And I had the great pleasure uh, just recently of interviewing Maggie Gyllenhaal, and um, uh, that was on a, a recent uh, podcast that we did. And I interviewed her about the film which she's just made, A Kindergarten Teacher. And then I said, um, you know, I hear that you learnt the theremin to play Frank. You know, I wasn't sure whether you were miming. She said, no, I, I did learn it. So, and I said, well, I just happened to have a theremin <laughs> with me. Oh, my you wanna, God, you her worst prove nightmare. It? And she did. I mean, God no, bless her. she was very she... good on it. You know, and, and so we, we had this thing, when, and Stephen Rannick did this heroic job writing music for, you know, and as the cast is assembled and the cast was changing and we were, people were coming in and we were sort of forming, we had to keep rewriting for the instruments they could play or we believed they could play. Yeah. And, uh, you know, because actors are great at telling you they can ride horses and you know, <laughs> drive racing cars and play great guitar, you know. Um, but, uh, but Maggie really, she's, she's an incredibly, uh, she does not, not like being bad at something. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she really put a huge effort into learning the theremin. And what's extraordinary about it, as I've, I've said this a million times, the theremin, which is invented by Lev Leon Theremin, who had this theory that the, that the most difficult thing with musical instruments was that they had notes. And if, therefore, <laughs> if you created a musical instrument that had no notes, almost anyone could play it. And it turns out the exact opposite yeah, is it's true. it's really hard. Almost nobody yeah. can play it. So we have a clip from Frank, which includes a little bit of uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal playing the theremin. And I play this not like just because I love the film, but because she really is playing the theremin. Here we go. 
And on the off chance that anyone doesn't know, underneath the papier-mâché head is... Is Michael Fassbender. Yeah, and we thought he's not a pleasing man to look at. <laughs> I just, I'd love to be at the finance meeting. We got Michael Fassbender. Yeah. That's great. You're never going to see his head. I will. I will say that generally speaking, everybody was incredibly mature through the whole process. But there was one meeting where somebody, and you could just feel they, they just, they, they wanted to stop themselves, but they couldn't. And and they just said, I mean, are we really sure we want to keep him in the head? It was like this is the whole idea of the movie. But yeah, I know it's perverse. But no, it's a genius. I love that film. I absolutely love it. Now, I was delighted that when we asked you to choose a guilty pleasure, again, you, you, know, you said, well, you're not guilty about it, but you chose an absolute humdinger. So, you know, we consider you made Room, which I thought was just so fantastically moving and, you know, such a brilliant, a, a brilliantly subtle way of telling such a difficult story. Obviously, the person that made Room, their guilty pleasure is Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> But so I'm, I'm actually feeling quite bad because Ben Wheatley does does gets to talk about Taxi Driver and I'm doing Dumb and Dumber. It's okay. He talked about Zardoz before. Yeah, okay, there is okay. no shame. <laughs> okay. So Dumb and Dumber. When did you first see it? I think. Uh, okay. When did it come out? It was it was nineties or it must have been ninety because I was working at Radio One. Yeah. I think I saw ninety four. Ninety four. I think I saw it when it came out. And I'm, I'm I love slapstick. I mean, you know, from Adam and Paul. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, you know, and I love Laurel and Hardy. I love the sort of childlike idiocy of those two characters and it just I totally it makes me laugh so hard and it's also beautiful like it, it's a film that contains that, that there's a scene in it like a, just a ridiculous moment where you know they're in it they're in a diner and and scenes always begin in Dumb and Dumber where like they're sitting there and it's like you know and scene and and in walks the waitress <laughs> and sort of stands there with the thing and and uh, 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 Carrie says you know what's the soup du jour she says, that's the soup of the day. She says, hmm, sounds delicious. I'll have that. And it's just like an exquisite piece of dialogue. Okay, so we have two clips um, to show. And we actually, to be honest with you, we could show the whole movie. But the first one is, is, is picking up the hiker. And I, I, when Nick said we've got, we've got some possible clips, I said, as long as we've got the most annoying sound in the world, he said, that's, oh, yeah, one, of the, that's one of the clips. My all-time favorite. So here we go. You can't triple stamp a double stamp. You can't triple stamp a double stamp, Lloyd. You can't triple stamp a double stamp. Lloyd, Lloyd, you guys! Enough! Hey, want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? Guys, guys, guys! Fellas, you think we could? Listen to the radio or something? Oh, God. It's just genius. It is genius. It? It's, uh, it's just incredible genius. And every, I mean, their films also just, the Farley Brothers stuff, I, and I interviewed, I, was, I got to do this thing in the Irish Film Board. It was like a comedy workshop. And I said, if I'm going to, who would you like to talk to? And I said, yeah. oh, one of the Farley Brothers, thinking there's no way. And, and um, Peter came over, which was amazing. But they're, they're, the films have actual heart. I mean, yeah. in a really lovely way and there's just something so fantastically funny about them. I think the, the best of their films do absolutely and that's only because there's that weird connection as well with Jonathan Richmond and yes. something about Mary Yeah. and in, in amidst all the sort of the slapstick nonsense the, the ones of their films that really hit home are the ones that do have a kind of sentimental core yes. because they, they are actually quite sentimental uh, filmmakers. They are and they, they use uh, there are actors in their films that come from their hometown that mm -hmm. they've worked with all the way and 
odd characters that they collect, and there's a kind of gentleness. And there is something, I mean, that, that through line from, from like vaudeville and slapstick, which is a kind of tender, stupid comedy, you know, as opposed to kind of uh, that, that black comedy idea of, you know, a sort of pact of cleverness between a sort of smart, cynical filmmaker and a smart, cynical audience. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a kind of generosity in what they do. Uh, and we're going to show another clip, which is, you know, you mentioned in the diner, this is the thing with the meeting, the, the hot... And again, it doesn't matter how many times you see this, it's funny every time. Here we go. Mr. That's not so bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's more tingly than hot. Yeah. <laughs> 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 My favorite line in that is this helps. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, with the exception of, of Adam and Paul, which does have some of that comedy, do you see elements of that? in other films that you do? I mean, I asked Ben before whether he sees, you know, elements of Taxi Driver in his work. I mean, not really. I, I mean, there are bits in Frank which are slapstick as well. Yeah. Sort of, there's, I like, they are the kings of the montage. You know, there's this famous montage in this work where he imagines what it will be like when he meets the woman whose, whose suitcase, whose cash he's yeah. delivering, right? And he arrives in Aspen and it's all, you know, it's out of some terrible Mills and Boone fantasy you know when he's entertaining her friends and they're deeply impressed and he's lighting farts and you know throwing peanuts into his mouth it's his idea of a sophisticated you know victory social victory um but uh, and so so like uh, there's, a, there's a montage or two in frank which is you know little sort of my pale attempt at, at a nod to that i would love to do i do love every every time i get involved in a project that has a bit of sunniness to it i tend it always ends up going dark and so it just seems to be the the way i am but you know maybe one day i I, i'll do a a comedy comedy what are you doing next um i'm working on a project i'm doing something for the bbc at the beginning of the year next year which is an amazing novel called normal people by sally rooney which is just it was long listed for the booker it's set in ireland first thing i've done in ireland for a long time and i'm gonna it's it's just it's about a love affair between two quite young people um set in the west of ireland i'm going to do a chunk of those episodes and then I'm going to make a film about uh, a man called Emil Griffith who was a um, a Caribbean American guy who was a boxer uh, mid-century you know 60s primarily into yeah. the 60s who was gay and who ended up killing in the ring the guy who outed him um, and that project is called it, it's it's called A Man's World at the moment and it, that may, may or may not stay and it's based on a book by Don McRae about, about Emil Griffith, also a book by Ron Ross. And there's a, quite an interesting documentary which you can watch on YouTube about Emil, who's absolutely extraordinary um, man. And uh, it's, a, it's a massive story, you know. Uh, it's about sexuality, it's about masculinity, race, um, at, at that really interesting period, 60s to 70s in the States. I really look forward to that. Um, the Irish Film Festival, as you said, is the 21st to the 25th. And I uh, said, so if anybody wants to come along, it looks like a really, really great uh, 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 program. Thank you so much for coming on the show. After all these years, it's, it's a real pleasure to meet it's you. It's a pleasure. Ladies thank you, Mark. Lenny Abramson, thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to this Kermode on Film podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe. And if you like the sound of the live show, but you can't get to one of the ones in London, don't worry, I'm coming to Birmingham to do a show in January. If you go to the episode description, you can find links to all the live shows. So go and have a look. Maybe we'll see you at a live show. Thanks a lot for listening. And as I said, if you've enjoyed it, please do subscribe. Rock and roll has been going downhill ever since Buddy Holly died. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.